Club Podcast. This week, the story of Jaguar's lightweight E-types from the very men who built them. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Podcast. Wayne Scott with you with a very special interview. We're going to be meeting the very team that was behind the lightweight Jaguar E-types. It was all on the back of an interview I did last year at the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust for the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. We actually filmed this interview and it goes into their vault of archive footage, which documents Jaguar's history through video. We've been given very, very special permission to reproduce the audio from that video interview for you here on the JEC podcast. And the team were brought together to celebrate the launch of a new book called Strictly No Admittance. And it's written by Peter Wilson, who was part of that team. And it tells the story of the Jaguar lightweight E-Type through the eyes of its author, Peter Wilson, who was one of the small team of men who built the lightweights in Jaguar's famed competition department, to which as the book's title emphasises, was indeed strictly no admittance to everyone else at Jaguar. That was the sign that was hung on the door. So it really is a, a true story of behind the scenes at Jaguar at Browns Lane. And as you'll see, Peter Wilson has an amazing ability to remember all of the different things that happened way back then. And it's all backed up with his meticulous research that has gone into this book as well. Just 12 lightweight E-types were produced, all in 1963. And they competed in major endurance races such as the Sebring 12 Hours, the Le Mans 24 Hours, the Goodwood Tourist Trophy and the Nürburgring 1000 Kilometres. Drivers throughout that time included Formula One world champion Graham Hill, champion-to-be Jackie Stewart, Roy Salvadori, and Jack Sears. The very first lightweight for WPD was on display the very day that we recorded this interview, and it was great to take some photographs of the team with the car. Those photographs you can see on the description part of the podcast page at jcpodcast.co.uk. So Peter Wilson, the author of this book, Strictly No Admittance, was backed up by the remaining people from the team. Jerry Beddows, who joined Jaguar in 1948. He was an extremely talented mathematician and engineer who made very significant contributions to the design and development of Jaguar's engine programs at the time. He also carried out key design programs on the C-type and D-type Jaguars, and he became Jaguar's chief engine development engineer in the early 1970s before moving on to more senior positions in other areas of the automotive world. You'll also meet Frank Philpot, who started as an apprentice, amazingly, in 1948. And Frank continued his career as part of the experimental engines team right through until his retirement. He helped to identify every single engine used by the works during the lightweight E-Type programme between 1963 and 1964. Peter Jones, a stalwart member of the competition department from the C-Type era of 1953 through to the competitions department's eventual closure in 1968. He is described as one of the very best racing mechanics of the era. 
and it was Peter who patched up the Cunningham Grossman lightweight E-Type when, during the 1963 Le Mans, Grossman found he had no brakes at the end of the Mulsanne Strait, and he hit the straw bales at about 70 miles per hour. Peter cut off the front half of the bonnet from the other Cunningham lightweights which had retired and attached it to the rear half of the Cunningham Grossman car uh, plus a straightened front suspension and uh, and a repaired radiator as well and the car went on to finish ninth overall that year incredible Brian Martin is also on this interview and he was an enthusiastic experimental department vehicle electrician who was responsible for all wiring and associated electrical work on the cars built by the competition department, not only for the lightweight E-Type but also the one-off XJ13 Le Mans prototype of course that lives to this day at Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. That car that I mentioned, the first lightweight, is owned by Sean Lynn, and it was there on the day. You can see the pictures of it with the team, as I say, on the JEC podcast page at jecpodcast.co.uk. So, let's get into it. Let's transport ourselves back to 1963, when in Browns Lane, there was a competition department building the lightweight Jaguar E-types, and we meet the team now, who worked in total secrecy. Enjoy. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Let's start with you, Peter, and the title of your book, Strictly No Admittance. Where did that title come from? And tell us the story of, of how you came to be at racing within Jaguar. Well, strictly no admittance. That was the notice on the competition department door. Right. And it meant every word. Interlopers were very easily spotted because competition department staff wore white overalls. Everyone else in the factory wore brown. We were talking about this. This was an aspirational thing, wasn't it? You had to get into those white overalls if, if you were working at the factory. Was it something people looked up to at the time? I think so, yes, because we were recognised throughout the factory. and Things were different in those days. If we wanted some parts that were a production part, we'd just go wander into the factory, walk up the production line, help ourselves. But if you've got white overalls on, they're only too keen to help you as much as they could. There's only that department and the painters general painters in the buildings who wore white overalls. Right. So you knew who they were. (laughs) But the painters were locked away in the paint shop. (laughs) (laughs) It it did stop them painting it, didn't it? No, it didn't. No. No. (laughs) How long did those overalls stay white in the paint shop? Not long, I could imagine. (laughs) Well, they were changed every week. I think they laundered every week. I think. They got a few stains on there in the Competition department. Oh, yeah. The worst bit was, of course, you leant against the ramp. Yes, that's right. And you had what was called the tiger stripes up your back because it was (laughs) there was a there was it was a screw ramp. The the screws were were well greased. And if you leant back, then you got this sort of a tiger stripe effect on the back of your overalls. And of course, you were very smart in those days, weren't you? Because not only did you have the white overalls on, but you also wore them with a tie, I notice. Yeah, most people wore wore collar and tie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was the, that was the dress of the day. 
Yes, it was. Nothing to do with health and safety, because that would stop that today, getting dragged into machines by your tie. It was more about the etiquette and making sure that you represented uh, Jaguar. Health and safety, what was that? What was that? Yes. yes. It was called common sense and don't do anything <laughs> silly. Yes, yes. Because, of course, these are the days when you smoked in the plant and you would have smoked in the offices, and that would have been the currency of the day, wouldn't it, to get things done? Well, this is for what was called foreigners. In other words, jobs for yourself. If you wanted one of the machinists to turn you something up, you'd, you'd negotiate a price, and uh, whether it was 10 fags or 20 fags, that would be the currency. But I never smoked, so um, I never really uh, had any come in my way at all. <laughs> you gave a lot away, but received Oh, none. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Let's um, just look back at what led up to then the lightweight E-type programme. Peter, let's talk about 1962, and there was a Briggs Cunningham entry at Le Mans, which achieved fourth place. Yes. Um, Ferrari had locked out the top spots that year, but there were other things happening to prepare E-types for competition, weren't there? Talk well, it that. was uh, really, really, it was uh, the Cunningham car for Le Mans was built on the back of what we were doing with um, the John Coombs entered car, which was, in fact, a, a works development car. And we progressively developed that through 1962, as I said, we uh, we had a, a thin gauge steel body structure on it, which was a bit of a cheat. It saved 25% in overall weight terms. But people like Ferrari, they operated fiddles as well. To all intents and purposes, they were all legal. But the Cunningham car we built for Le Mans was a standard fixed head coupe shape, but it incorporated all the stuff that we'd got on the uh, Coombs car at that point. And it's... It finished fourth at Le Mans. Now, it was driven out there. It ran the 24 hours at Le Mans, and it was driven back. And it was just as healthy when it returned as when we left it, when it left Browns Lane. It was a really good car. Then towards the end of 62, when we developed the, uh, the Coombs car, probably as far as we could go, it still wasn't competitive enough. And that was when the decision was taken to build the all-aluminium lightweights. So we took the Coombs car apart, as just said, it was our works development car. We threw most of the bits away. We reused what we could in the all aluminium version, which is outside now. But in 1963, we then built a further 11 lightweights, all aluminium cars, and Cunningham ran three as a team at Le Mans. It was the closest Jaguar ever got to re-entering competition. Sure. They were built, prepared, in the competition department, they were looked after the circuit by competition department personnel. Unfortunately, a decision had been made to fit them with Jaguar prototypes of Jaguar's all-new four-speed synchromesh gearbox, which was intended for production about a year, 18 months later. It was a disaster because all three suffered from serious gearbox problems. And uh, one eventually finished ninth and funnily enough, it won the over three litre GT class. But it had had brake failure in the early morning of the Sunday morning, the end of the straight. And um, the driver, uh, Bob Grossman, he had had to arrest the car by crashing through a whole series of uh, straw bale walls. Wow. He managed to drag the car back to the pits eventually. The wheels was to point in that way. The nose was... <laughs> wrecked <laughs> but and there was no water in the radiator because the radiator had, had been split and various and my colleague 
Peter Jones, who, uh, and Peter unfortunately can't be with us today, but Peter, I, I, I always said was, I always believed he was one of the best racing mechanics of the era. Nobody ever heard of him. Nobody knew about him. He was very quiet. He didn't blow his own trumpet, but he, together with one of Cunningham's mechanics, rebuilt that car in two and a half hours in the pits to get it back in the race. And it went on to finish, uh, finish the race ninth. It was the last ever works-built Jaguar to finish at Le Mans. They had to cut the front end off the bonnet, and from one of the other two cars which had retired, they used the bonnet. They weren't allowed to replace the bonnet completely, so they had to cut the, the undamaged nose off one of the other car's bonnets and rivet it onto the remains of the rear section of the crash car's bonnet. They got a round of applause from the crowd, apparently, <laughs> when, they, when, when, when the car rejoined the race. Yes, that was true, though. Yeah. Incredible. When you think of today, and they just have whole body panels, oh, don't yes, they? You just yeah, clip on. Of spares, yes. Yeah. Yes, but the rules were that you couldn't change a complete body panel. Right, OK. So, uh, but that was really the end of Cunningham's efforts at, with, with Jaguar at Le Mans. Subsequently, the, the 4WPD, the, uh, our works development car, Graham Hill drove it mostly in 1962. Whenever he drove it, he won against strong opposition. And we'd got the, the lightweight was on top of the Ferrari GTOs, but nothing stands still in racing. And gradually, as the season wore on, Ferrari got the upper hand again. Yeah. For 1964, we further developed 4WPD by lowering it an inch and a half, wider wheels, various other things. But Really, by 1964, the era of the front-engine GT car was over. Sure. And uh, we parted with the car. Coombs had it back. Um, don't know what the financial arrangements was, but he had it back at the end of the 1964, and he sold it on. Well, it's amazing when I look at it now, how small it looks. A lot of those light alloy e tires look small. The same size. But... Mm. So yeah. many cars yeah. from that era now look small. They do, yeah. yeah. Neat and so cheap. narrow as well. Yeah. With yeah. yeah. <laughs> From a body point of view, it's quite a nervous car to send out onto a racetrack because there are hugely complex, to someone like me looking at that body, hugely complex curves to repair in, the, in a motorsport situation. Was that your worry as a, as a body guy? Well, I never got to repair many of them, actually, yeah. to be honest. We were rebuilding them up and making parts of the car, hard tops and seats and various other issues. But I think what Peter Jones did was just demonstrate what racing mechanics had to do then. Yeah. Is improvised. And it's interesting to hear you, you talk but about... It's a different scene now because these days, it's, you look at Formula One, I think it's modern-day stock car racing. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, there was none of this barging and um, bumping and boring. Very close racing, yes, but they didn't run into each other. It wasn't a stock car race. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, that's what racing's turned into these days. They use them as battering rams. I think... To answer your first question about the Ferrari versus the E-Type, I can never quite understand. The, I mean, the, the really successful Ferrari was the Mariner, Mariner Concessionaire's car, which was often driven by Mike Parks uh, and Graham Hill, wasn't it? Yeah, he, he drove it on occasions, yes, yeah. I could never understand how Ferrari managed to get a car from solid axle car to handle so well and I can only think it must have been weight distribution with the gearbox at the back and 
Like with V12 at the front. He was a driver's delight. But a good Ferrari would see off a good ETA. Oh, yeah. Generally speaking. Yeah. It, it, it's, is it true that John Coombs had a 250 GTO and lent it to Well, Malcolm yes. Bayer? Well, yes, he had. Because he turned up, he, he was at Brown's Hatch in 1962, and we were running the E-Type, and I was there with Peter Jones, and um, Salvadori was a bit of a joke. He liked to wind up his, the op his, <laughs> his friends, in inverted right. commas, to try and sort of um, unsettle them. We were standing waiting for practice to commence, and E-Type was there, and Coombs had got this GTO, white one. And um, Salvadori was driving it, and Salvadori said to Hill, we overheard him say to Hill, you want to get yourself a proper car to drive, none of this stuff here, you see. And Hill says, I'll show the bugger. And he promptly went out and, and put in practice laps faster than Salvadori. So, so it, Roy Salvadori's attempt to unsettle him worked against him. <laughs> um, but, um, there was, but the Coombs car, we, our man, Mike McDowell, who is in the, as I mentioned earlier, was the front of house man in the service department, who faced off to customers who wanted to race the cl in club events, their cars, etc. He was offered the job of general manager of Coombs' organisation by Coombs himself. He thought he, he recognised a good man when he saw one. Hmm. Uh, so he went off there and some arrangement was struck whereby we had the Coombs car for examination, the Coombs Ferrari for examination. Right. We had it for quite a few weeks. And we, took it apart. We took it apart. <laughs> and... Um, I remember Bill Haynes coming into the shop one day and he was looking at it and Bob Penny was standing by the car and he says, Haynes says, he says Penny, he says, um, I think you should start taking the engine out of this. And that was this. He, our engineering director, he'd come and talk to people on the shop floor. He hadn't mentioned it to Phil. Anyway, all right, get started. Give the engine to the experimental engine section. Put on the test bed. Um, and um, they used the car exhaust system. And Jim ran it in his test bed. And they had the car exhaust draped either side of the, because it's a V engine, V2, either side of the test bed and everything else. And this thing, and the exhaust system glowed red hot when it was running at full chat. And they had these beautiful snap, made by snap, exhaust extractors on the mm. ends of the Ferrari tailpipes, chrome plated. When we had the exhaust system back from Frank's lot, they were the colour of your jacket, a dull. <laughs> somebody said, if you polish them, you can polish the blue out. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> Meantime, while they had the engine next door on the test bed, Coombs arrived with um, Lofty England to, and um, Lofty brought him in and here's his car to see his car and he's in bits. He went ballistic <laughs> and stormed <laughs> off. I don't know what was said, but we never heard any more and we just got on with it. Um, but then it all went wrong because we had, when we took all the, the engine out and so on various other bits and pieces, the car was basically stuck on our, our ramp so we could get underneath it and, and work from the top. And we got all the nuts and bolts because they're all metric threads. We used the unified system, totally different. And we got them in little cardboard boxes marked up with what they would come. And they were along the side of the ramp. Well, Frank mentioned... Um, the labourer, the Irishman that, that you had, he used to sweep our shop up on Sunday mornings as a bit of overtime. So we came in and um, 
there's a, hang on, there's all the boxes. Gone. He'd only swept them up and chucked them away. So we'd got this car in bits. We hadn't got any nuts and bolts that would, of the, the same thread size or, or diameter. The lot, it was a panic. Phil Weaver spent hours on the phone to various motor factors in Birmingham trying to source. Do you have a bolt kit for a GTO, please? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're to measure up every one. Yeah, we need it this long. It's, oh, this is the thread formula. Um, and uh, Peter Jones, my colleague, says, he says, when I was in the army, he says, um, Centurion tanks used to use a side valve Morris 8 engine as an auxiliary power unit. Phil says, don't, didn't it? Gets on to Morris engines up in the other side of Coventry, uh, a guy called Jack Goffin. Hey, you still make it? Yeah, we do. Phil gives me a list and I go up there and we sort of do a bit of a picking. What's on the list? Yes, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So managed to get about 30% of what we want, wanted that way. The rest Phil sourced through various motor factors in, uh, in Birmingham. And what we couldn't find, Bill Cassidy in the mach experimental machine shop had to make. <laughs> wow. So we eventually got it back together. Now we joked that invariably, if we had a car from somebody else, there was this little guy called Sod, he of Sod's Law, used to sit on our shoulders. And this was one of the occasions. <laughs> but it, it was important work, wasn't it? Because I know um, from seeing drawings of the time and photographs that you really did go to town as well on working out how the air flowed over the two cars as a comparison. Yes. And there was the little bits of cotton walls taped all over it. And Malcolm Sayer got a little bit sort of uh, obsessed with, with drag and, and, and the airflow, didn't he? But Malcolm did a, uh, on the, as far as the GTO was concerned, we had it in the, he had it in the wind tunnel at Myra. And some of the, the air scoops that were facing forward on the, because Ferrari's aerodynamics, I don't think was, it was a bit sort of, yeah, we'll do this, we'll do that. We'll do that. Malcolm found that rather than air going in, it was coming out. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. But there was a strange thing, you know, because when we gave Coombs's car back, it had been reported over the years that we'd had the car, etc. Coombs denied it to his dying day. Really? And the only conclusion I came to as a result, it's recorded in the book here, was that I think perhaps it wasn't his. Because... The Ferrari importer was Maranello Concessionaires. Now, somebody said, oh, Coombs just went out and bought a GTO. Well, of course, they're in every showroom in creation, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we thought it belonged to Maranello Concessionaires and Coombs had leased it because the following year, it was raced under the Maranello Concessionaires banner. Ah. So... Hence why he was upset that you'd taken it apart then. Yeah, and we don't, I think Ferrari, he, he had a sub-agency for Ferrari. And we think that had word got back to Ferrari himself that Coombs, one of his UK agents, had lent a car to Jaguar, it would not have looked good for Coombs in terms of business. <laughs> mm, so sure. I, I suspect that it was never his, it was leased. Hence, hence he was so upset. And the fact he denied it forever. So, uh, interesting, though. What do you think it was that, at the time, made... Because, you know, as you started the interview, you sort of outlined the fact that the E-types had needed no help to sell them. Um, Jaguar really had pulled back from motorsport towards the end of the 1950s. But what was it then that made Sir William Lyons and Bill Haynes basically 
put the green light on for, I guess, the, the guys that would have commissioned you, Derek White and Tom Tom Jones, would it have been? Yeah, Tom 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 was um, headed up the chassis design in the in the design yeah. office in the chassis design office. Yes. So that day, sixteenth of November, nineteen sixty-two, where they came in and said, "Here's your instructions." That sort of three-page book that you were given, not much detail. <laughs> go and get on with it. What was the what was the catalyst to that? Do you think what suddenly made them want to go racing with those cars? Well, I think I think it was always on the cards, although Tractor withdrew from racing. There was never a definitive, well, we're not ever going to do it again. It was when the time was right and when the car was right. And when it didn't affect the bread and butter of production. And that time never arrived. The car was, by the time you'd built it and proved it, was out of date. Um, the rear engine car was coming along. And I think the time would have passed when they could look successfully to re-enter racing. And they realised that. Because XJ13 had already been worked on at this yeah. point, hadn't Well, it, it was. It's, it's when we finished with the lightweights in 1964, we started on XJ13. Actually, Bill Haynes was the catalyst. He was the enthusiast. And he kept the competition department together as a, a kind of really a clandestine operation um, after the works withdrew officially. Mm-hmm. And Bill Haynes would always, uh, he was always wanting to, uh, but Sir William held the purse strings and he had him by the, the, co- uh, by the, the collar. He probably got close once or twice, but then walked away from it. I think Sir William was astute enough to realise that unless they could produce a really successful car, it was not worth going back into race. Yeah. It would do more harm than good. It's free publicity. As soon as they started racing, they got the best engine by chance. It had just come out. So they got the fast cars, faster than anybody else was running at that time. And they were going to go into competition with people like Ferrari and Mercedes who were throwing a lot of money at it. To get into it, but Jaguar got free publicity with all that now. But it really, it really sort of emphasised what Jaguar achieved, particularly in the mid fifties with the D-type against the might of Mercedes. Yeah. With you think, well, where are all the people? It was only a handful of people, and it's quite remarkable, really, that the XK engine, capable of being had that much potential locked within it. And a lot of that is down to, was down to Claude Bailey, who was the uh, chief engine yeah. designer, who, again, he's a man that not many people hear of. He was, a, he was a gentleman, very quiet, unassuming, but extremely, uh, very, extremely very good. engineer. We were just talking about him as we came down, Frank, Frank and myself, Claude Bailey, yes. But it was 350 brake horsepower that came out of that 3.8 litre in the end. Well, 344 is the magic figure. Yeah, amazing. Um, um, you remember, Frank, when we were talking to, to George when we were doing stuff for the book, and um, so it was either you or Jim says, well, the power was still climbing at six and a half. It hadn't reached the peak of the power curve. Why didn't we rev it faster? And, and George says, he says, well, he says, he says, we were frightened, he says, because you know the way it was. He said, 
the engine was required in a blooming car two days later, and if we blew it up, we'd be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but had we been able to run the engine at high revolutions, then there was probably more to come. You consider what they've spent on doing that competition system throughout, with very little money, everything was machined on production, everything was built in either the comp shop or the engine shop, or probably the body shop did some work. No, didn't the body people across the city do a lot of the panels just to hop with. Abbey panels. Abbey panels, did you? Yeah. So Plating most of our experimental And they would, they would almost do the world free of charge, so oh. they'd got their stuff from mm. publicity. Well, they did on the XJ220, didn't they? That was a yeah. publicity exercise. Yeah. It was, it was. Yeah. Mm. I've always thought how fortunate they were. And they could run the 2.4 as well if they wanted to. And it would run very well, it wasn't very powerful, but it would run forever. It's, you raise a good point there that, you know, the, the, this was the era where you took a production engine and put it in a race car off the production line. You didn't have a, another plant building the engines for the race cars. And, and to your point about the 62 Le Mans car that drove back to the factory and looked pristine, I mean, that's an incredibly robust engine to be able to do that, isn't it? It was a robust engine, and really, when you think about what they did, they put a good, a bigger oil pump in, and they used nitrided crankshafts and things because they lasted longer, and the bearings would have been capable of more heat, all that sort of thing. But the water pumps, they're all standard. The centerhead castings at that time would have been standard. They then got that uh, wide-angle head. That was the first sort of big move. No, it was, a, it was a brilliant... I don't think it was just fortunate. I think Haynes did a good job in convincing Sir William that we could get the performance. Mm -hmm. I think that's the amazing thing about the XK engine. Mm -hmm. For, if you look at its history, you know, it's basically a 1930s design block with an, an aluminium head for an overhead cam. Nobody was producing a twin overhead cam engine for production at the time. Nobody else in the world. It was just too expensive, too complicated. Um, but it was certainly the most successful power unit that Jaguar ever built. Mm. You could get the people on fettling the ports and you could get the power out of almost any of the blue heads, 12,500 heads. You could get it. Nothing special. You did end up with dry sumping them, didn't you? The dry sumps. And, and aluminium crankcases as well. Um, no, they, that, that was on the, for the lightweight, was the, uh, the aluminium mm, okay. uh, cylinder block and crankcase. But the dry sump engines were much earlier right. um, for the D-types because that enabled them to lower the, uh, because the, the bonnet line. Because the were so big and the oil flowed out of the way. Right. We used to drive round in cars with a sump bolted probably on the front of the back seat full of oil with a perspex top on it and they'd be doing brake tests and seeing where the oil went to. And I've actually been in a car, I think with Dewis, not sure, where, where you were doing this 
to see whether they'd got the right baffling in the sump. And that, that was a, it was so that we didn't have to buy a new system. <laughs> <laughs> was it a problem that they ever had then, oil starvation on, on long corners or, or things like that? No, because they'd done it right. They'd got it right. But they'd done it before. And when the dry sump came in, the dry sump, I'm, I'm talking about the, um, yes, dry sump. That was on just on the 3540 system, wasn't it? With an oil, an oil tank stuck on it and that double pump system. On yeah, it, yeah. The outside. But then again, they drove that from the same gear on the nose of the crank because it was, it was just brilliantly designed. But the engine was super reliable, really. I mean, the, the cast iron block XK racing engine was pretty much bulletproof. Yeah, and absolutely. Um, the, um, now, a lot of the other companies involved in racing would aspire to its level of reliability, but they were never really in the same league when it came to reliability. It was absolutely bulletproof. Well, when we went to the aluminium block, then things changed. Well, they made a mistake of um, using the same casting procedure for the aluminium block that they did for the steel block. Um, and I think its biggest problem was it was porous. Well, yeah, and they'll see it cracked in various places yeah. as well. And, they um, were so successful from the design office point of view that they could do that with the aluminium stuff. And it worked because they got so much knowledge from the, all the old heavy iron stuff that they'd use, they knew where they could go. That's why we never had real, real big trouble with anything in the engine shop. And with the, the valve springs, for example, everybody else has to do something different. The port shapes, we had a bloke called Windy who used to fettle the ports to get the right shape. And... Uh, and guess why he was called Windy then? <laughs> <laughs> his, his name was Frank Windridge. Oh, OK, right. <laughs> Just a coincidence. <laughs> he, he got the job because he's, uh, he got a, a problem with oil on his hands. And they said, would you do this job? And he said, yes. But he did a lot of work himself going to the library and finding books on airflow, and he knew what he was looking for. He was good. Yeah, he was good. You know, tell him about the bets that he used to have with um, Harry Weslake. Yes, he used to. Weslake used to come up. Wes Weslake, he was, uh, was, was an airflow consultant. Right, yeah. Uh, and highly revered throughout the industry. Anyway, carry on, Frank, go on. And, and uh, when Weslake came and said he'd got so much air through this and Windy would say, well, I can get that anywhere time, you know, easy. Weslake used to say, "Let you fire Bob, you can't. And Windy used to do it, get the money off Weslake. <laughs> but Windy was very good at it. The bloke who had only got the job because he got a skin complaint and he did all the work himself, he didn't do it through anybody from the design. He went to the library and got books from, I don't know who wrote those days about airflow. But Windy used to study them and come in and he knew what he was doing. 
and he was just an ordinary fitter before then. But he, he trained himself to do it. It was good. It always amazes me hearing stories like that and hearing about those people that personalities of individuals made such a difference during this era. Oh, Whereas God. now you, yeah. you're sort of faceless corporate machine, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, the, pl the plastic people. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, you know, individual people really made a big difference, yeah. partly, I guess, because you were such a small team. But um, as far as Windu is concerned, remember when we were chatting with George one day, this is when we were doing, sorting out stuff for the book, um, George Buck was our um, engine development guru, really, and uh, uh, he, 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 was, he was a good man. And uh, he, George says, he says, you know, he says, of all the people in the experimental engine department, the most difficult man we would have had to, we, to replace was Windy, because there wasn't anybody else. Wow. Uh, outside of the company, you know, he was, he was a, he developed himself into a specialist. Yeah, self-taught niche, as it were. Yes, yeah. yes. Fantastic. He, he, just, he just knew the job. He, he was given the job because he, I don't think he got any option, actually. You can't work with engines if you can't sand oil. Dermatitis, he was. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Yes, before latex gloves were required, I guess. Oh, latex <laughs> gloves? Another single man job. All of the competition heads had the valves ground in by Harry Holt. You remember in Small Blood? Well, he did all of the competition heads. And he was in a disc. I only know this story, forgotten who told me. But apparently somebody said, what did you do there? And he said, I did every competition head. I don't talk such what you do that, but he did. He built everyone. By hand? Was he lapping in the valve? Lapping like in that? by hand, yeah. Wow, amazing. And then, you know, we'll clean it in assembly. Again, the grinding paste out and making sure he hadn't left anything in dodgy down on it. And then uh, he'd build it up. We're going to continue talking about the engine development program that was behind the creation of the Jaguar E-Type lightweights. And we've been joined by the man who can help us with all of these questions, and that is Jerry Beddows. Now, Jerry was former design development engineer. Uh, Jerry joined Jaguar back in 1948. And uh, I'm told he's a very, very talented mathematician and engineer. Uh, worked on the C-Type light alloy prototype, D-type, and made a significant contribution to Jaguar's engine program, eventually becoming chief engine development engineer for Jaguar in the early 1970s, before someone poached him and took him away. But uh, welcome to Jerry. Jerry, we were talking about how robust the 3.8 XK engine had already proved to be before the lightweight program had started. Yes. That was really the thing that had given Jaguar so much success, and it? That robustness and reliability. That's right, that's right. But as I to say, I wasn't involved directly with the lightweight programme, because I was back in the drawing office then, uh, and with Peter and the guys in the racing shop doing it, I was involved with the, the Mark II, the Mark X, but in fact I, I spent then four years away from Jaguar from 1960 to 64, where I was at the uh, AE Group Research Base at, at Causton, 
where we developed the Brico fuel injection system, which again, Peter's very familiar with. Because this was one of the big innovations, wasn't it? This, these cars were fuel injected. That's right, that's right. Well, the very first, I think I drew the drive to the very first experiment with fuel injection, which was an SU project using an American uh, fuel injection system, which was um, a swashbait system. Pistons actually around a cylinder with an angled plate against them, and the angle of the plate was varied the fuel, varied the strokes, so it varied the fuel, and it, it was mounted on top of one of the camshafts. The whole system was designed for steady-state aircraft use and just was not responsive to cars. So it didn't do very much at all. And then, of course, Downing came along from Lucas with the, the Lucas fuel injection system. And was getting fuel in that engine in a race situation a problem then? Was it, was it starved without fuel injection? Well, well, no, but if you have fuel injection, you can then have a, a much bigger throat in the air intake and get much freer air, air motion, um, and you'll get perfectly even fuel distribution. Yeah, much better efficiency. Yes, yeah. yes. As the programme developed, it, it sort of happened with another a few things that were around um, in history for Jaguar at the time, and I wonder what impact you think their purchase of Coventry Climax had on Jaguar at the time. Did that directly affect this project? Did it benefit Jaguar in, in any way, or was it merely a way of getting talent and people into, into the business at the time? It was a way of getting Wally Haston back to Jaguar. Yeah. That was really top and bottom of it. Although, I at that particular time, he left Jaguar to go to Climax when they had actually made Mr. Haynes the director. Right. Yeah, so we had uh, visions of a, a group which obviously did achieve with uh, Climax and Guy Motors and uh, Daimler. You know, the huge amount of competition history within Coventry Climax then, but yeah, uh, you know, they're well proven throughout history already That's by that true. point. What were the challenges then that you had to address, overcome? We talked about the fact that the engine had ended up as a dry sump. We've got the fuel injection. We've got a fairly difficult situation with aluminium crankshafts. What were the other things that were addressed on that XK engine as part of the lightweight project at the time? Aluminium crankcase. Crank, yeah. I think you said shaft, didn't you? If I did, I meant crankcase, yes. <laughs> Don't get your cases mixed with your shafts. It's not a good thing to do, but yes. There was an Achilles heel with the lightweight, which we discovered in 1964, because towards the middle of 63, we were handicapped, the cars were handicapped by the, uh, the, the four-speed, non-synchronized first-gear Jaguar gearbox, which was uh, ancient, and really all the serious opposition ran five-speed gearboxes. And we looked to see what was what. As usual, Jaguar, there's not a lot of money around. Um, and the only uh, possibility was a ZF gearbox, which cost £125 each, I discovered, Jerry. Yeah, but that was a lot of money then. It was. Yeah. We engineered this into the, into the lightweights, hoping it would give us a little bit more of a competitive advantage. But it didn't, because um, unfortunately, and it was very heavy. And the way the Jaguar engine was mounted, there was two mounts at the front of the, uh, uh, of the cylinder block. 
Then there was like a steady mounting uh, above the, the gearbox it was, uh, and bell housing area. And then the, the, uh, the, the third main mounting was in fact the, um, the rear of the gearbox. The ZF gearbox, the five-speed gearbox, was much longer than the Jaguar one. And it was made worse by the fact that the input shaft for the ZF box was extremely long and we had to put a three inch thick adapter plate between the bell housing and the gearbox to accommodate the length of the gearbox input shaft. Couldn't afford to have a new one made or a shorter one. So you'd got the engine suspended here and here. It had a tendency to do this. Uh, it was called engine bending in later life. When the Linda car went to Le Mans in 1964, it uncovered a whole sort of a, a can of worms, really, because the car retired midway through the race with water loss. Now, it was thought that the cylinder head joint had gone. Bob Penny and Frank Rainbow changed the head in the pits during the race, and it was all right for a little bit longer. But you had to run something like 30 laps at Le Mans, the regulations said you had to run 30 laps before you could replace any fluids. Well, it was running on the, the very dregs of water at the end of it, and it, it ran out of water, and that was the end of it. So we hurt the car back, and then we discovered what the problem was. It wasn't the head gasket at all. With the way that the engine and gearbox were flexing like that, it had broken the back of the cylinder block and cracked through the, uh, the water jacket, let the water out. And this became a characteristic of all of the lightweights fitted with the ZF gearbox. And that was the Achilles heel. So it, it, was, it did us no favours, the, uh, the ZF gearbox, in any shape or form. Mm. And this was a five-speed box? Yes, it was, yeah. yes, yes. In fact, it was the same box as Aston Martin used as a production, uh, on their production cars. It was sort of commercially available. The other interesting thing is that they would not, ZF would not give Jaguar a workshop manual or any detailed drawings of it because they were obtained through a um, ZF's concessionaire who was based down in London. It was a bit of a strange arrangement, really. Couldn't go direct to ZF. You had to go to this guy in London who was the uh, UK concessionaire for ZF products. Yeah, it was a, a development idea that didn't work and um, resulted in a lot of problems from the uh, aluminium blocks point of view. And were there plans at that point to almost, I guess, try it out on those lightweights in order to put it into production at the time? No, 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 no. It was just a means of getting a five-speed gearbox. Of course, you didn't run cooling fans when racing either, would you, at that point? No, 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 totally unnecessary. So that water would have been lost fairly quickly when it was well, still, still well, in the pits, yeah. Well, it's, um, yeah, once you've got, a, if you've got a crack in a cylinder block, then it, yeah. it's very difficult to keep it in. Yeah. And production radiators, I think, I notice as well. There were no special racing radiators that you used for cooling the cars. Is that right? Well, that's right. Well, the E-Type was first launched with an aluminium radiator. Mm. And we used the aluminium radiators throughout the competition program. But the aluminium radiator didn't last long in production. Nothing to do with its construction. But it was the handling, because they were built by a, an outside supplier, and they were very vulnerable to knocks, bangs, etc., and um, there was so much damage occurred in the uh, in the production system that they went to a uh, back to a, a copper and copper and brass radiator, which was more robust and would uh, withstand being um, thrown around in the production areas. Mm. Incredibly uh, ahead of its time in that respect. It's it's a shame really that it was such short short-lived component because of course 
aluminium radiators are everywhere now. Well, they are now, but see, they were in the infancy then. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what about the, the further down the drivetrain then? What was happening with the rear axle on the car? And, and where did the development come from that? Was that based on what you'd already used in the Coombs car before? Well, it, it, and basically it was, it was the production uh, independent rear suspension unit that was uh, really... Um, I think it was Bob Knight that was really instrumental in that, wasn't yes, it? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. The only thing that we did was to, um, because we'd fitted bigger brakes, we had to mod make some modification to the axle, actual carrier subframe. But we did look at using an aluminium um, casting for the um, the differential housing. Oh, right, yes. But um, it didn't work really because um, it was mainly, it, it used to get very hot. The seals were, and the bearings didn't sort of, uh, things the expansion, etc. Mm. it didn't. We only ran one car, and that yes. was um, not in any race situation. Mm. Um, and so we, we gave up on the uh, the aluminium uh, casting for the, um, for the the differential housing. Well, it was an incredible achievement that through the lightweight E-types, you managed to shave off, I think, um, 250 pounds of weight off of the road car's weight and you'd become 100 pounds lighter than those Ferrari 250 GTOs we were talking about. Are those figures just about right? Just about right, except that it was, we shaved off more than 250 pounds from the road car. The road car, if you look at the, um, uh, the publicity info, it says it was around 2,200 weights for a, uh, the, uh, the road car. The reality was it was nearer 24. Right. <laughs> It's about 100 weight of undersail. Yeah. <laughs> yes. it, it was the same with the engine power as well, Jerry. Remember, two, two, 265 was quoted. Yes. If you were lucky with open intake on the test right. bed, if you could get about 230. Yes. <laughs> um, but Frank used to draw the graphs. So you can blame Frank. Give <laughs> you what you wanted. <laughs> so, How much do you want? Yeah. Another 10 here. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody was in the same game. I mean... Uh, if you believed everything that Ferrari said, then they have the best of luck. Well, it was an amazing, just looking at the car out there now, it's an amazing achievement to have taken such, you know, a thin alloy. I think it was NS4 is the, is the, the well, yes. technical term for the, the metal that was used. Is that right? Yeah, it was a half-hard um, aluminium. Uh, it had some magnesium content as well. But, um, but as far as that car was concerned... We, we had the first monocoque. It was put together on the, in the production assembly jig, roughly. Then it went to Abbey Panels, and they completed all the welding on it. And we had it back, and it came, and it was put on, a, on, on our shop floor. And we looked at it. Bob Blake looked at it with complete disgust. And it had all the rigidity of a wet bus ticket. <laughs> and there was an awful lot of stiffening and additional um, structural stuff put into the thing, mainly devised by Bob Blake and Phil Weaver. Yeah, I remember Bob doing a lot of welding. Oh, yes. Yeah. Aluminium mm. welding was not the known thing then, not on thin metal like that anyway. A lot of it was Argonarchs, and um, yes. we managed to acquire an Argonarch set. Mm. Now, there was, uh, even, even that was um, a bit of a fiddle because the production cylinder heads were aluminium. Well, occasionally, probably more than occasionally, there were machining errors on, in production, which meant that the head was effectively scrap. But it could be recovered by building it up with um, uh, Argonarch welding and then remachined. And we wanted this Argonarch welding set. Uh, but Phil Weaver discovered that um, uh, over in the machine shop, Jack Beardsley had got an Argonarch set, 
to recover damaged production heads. But what he couldn't afford was a man to work full time on it because he couldn't, there weren't sufficient scrap heads to uh, occupy a man full time. So Phil did a deal with him where we had the aluminium, uh, the Argonarch set in our department. And uh, the deal was that they would send over um, scrap heads that needed um, rework um, on an as and when basis. Phil de delegated one of our uh, one of our one of our men, Gordon Gardner, to this job. So about twice a week, a fork truck would arrive with a pile of heads on. Gordon would do his stuff and build them up again, and off they'd go again. Meantime, we'd got our uh, Argonarch set that we needed for the lightweights, and that would have been allowed you to have seem welded rather than spot welded, presumably, because of the different way that you're able to yeah, weld with that yeah, system. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, but all of the lightweight body shells, they were assembled in the production jig um, over weekends. So they had to change the uh, the voltage settings on the spot welding uh, and the tips as well. And, um, uh, and that would be it uh, over a Saturday or Sunday, and uh, then it would be back to the production uh, body shells after that. Was that something of a challenge then, to take a car that had had its panels designed um, at Abbey Panels, presumably by a guy with all the dollies and the tools to make it by hand and by eye, and then you'd, you'd kind of had to have gone into production on production tooling afterwards? Is that, is that how it worked? Well, initially, they did the southern yeah. welding as well, didn't they, on production? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the problem with spot welding, it was difficult, I believe. Uh, I um, think the... Um, Abbey panels used the original tooling. They did, yeah. For pressing the panels out. But unfortunately, what did happen, as Peter just said, uh, is that the stress cracks that occurred at the, the most highly stressed points had to be welded back up again. And that's a lot of the work that Bob did. But bear in mind, these are racing cars. They weren't ma meant to last 50 or 60 years. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Two seasons. Two most. seasons and that's it, yes. Mm. Um, I suppose none of the expertise in Argonaut welding remained from the light alloy car days. No. Because that was magnesium, MG4 magnesium alloy. Yeah. I can remember the BOC engineers coming in to, uh, well, they did some of the initial welds. Whether they changed... Um, they taught Jaguar people to do it or not, I don't know, because the light yellow car was just a one-off. That, that's a car, you, you're the, probably the only one that knows much about that light yellow car yeah. because there's, there's scant little information about it anywhere, Jerry. Well, that's right. I mean, it was, it was you, know, you, you can see the D-type grow out of it. Yeah. My involvement with it, I was in the drawing office then. I helped uh, Malcolm Sarah. Um, on weight estimates and so on for it. it was, my job was, in fact, to, to design the front suspension and, um, you know, calculate thinner sections because, you know, the, the, the uh, XK120 front suspension was inherited from the Mark V. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it was massive for a sports car and uh, I, I never saw a weight comparison. And I think the, uh, the front suspension on the... Uh, light alloy car, which, which then went into the D-type, then to the E-type, and then to the XJ13, in fact. The light alloy car is into... You can't find anything in the archive about it at all. Um, no, I've, I've got a couple of 
photos of the exterior. Yeah. The one where Norman Dewis did that speed run with it. 117. With the bubble. Yes. That's right. Yes. 170.1, yes. I think it was. Um, clamped under a, a plastic ball. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And sat on a cushion to keep him down, presumably, as well. I'm, I'm surprised that some of the drawings, which must have been in the, in the drawing office files, didn't get transferred into the archives. Well, I think a lot yeah. of them went missing. Did they? Yeah. Did they? Yeah. I think the other thing was, I mean, the archive, I don't think really, and it was a bit of an ad hoc sort of thing, they were piled into, um, do you remember the shooting range at Browns Lane? Yes. Well, apparently they were piled into there. All, all stuff was just tossed yes. into there. Nobody in particular, as, I, as was, I got... There was no interest in heritage so yeah. at, no. at all. But um, there was no interest in, in, in filing any documents. No. No. I mean, you know, I, I, in the drawing office, I used to get involved in everything from suspension, springs, valve springs, cams, even counterbalance springs for the XK150 uh, drop head. But you, you, all you did was more, off, more often than not, the paper you had to write on was torn up advertising material. <laughs> really? I mean, there weren't, there weren't loose leaf pads or anything like that. There was no filing system for it all. So you're right, it just disappeared. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny you should say that, Jerry, because I, uh, um, when I did the XJ13 book and I scoured the archive for stuff, uh, you're absolutely right. And a lot of Derek White's sketches, they're sort of just hand-written sketches, and they're on torn up bits of paper. Yes. And you turn over and you say it's an advertising That's thing. Right. I mean, That's right. And that's how and we really spent money big time at Jaguar. <laughs> oh, Sir William didn't waste money. It's <laughs> amazing. When I started in, in engine development in, in uh, 1951, just a month after my 20th birthday, um, there were four of us there. Jack Emerson, who was chief development engineer, yeah. and Fred Keatley, who was yeah. the, the tester, and Jimmy Stick, who was... I think in those days it was called an improver. It was a kind of apprenticeship. It was an improver, yeah. And, and, and me and I, you know, we were in this corrugated asbestos shed. Mostly the engines ran with the car system. And so that, that was draped across the floor. And somebody had kicked a hole in the bottom of this Vestra paddle. And the exhaust stuck outside. <laughs> Petrol feed to the engines was from an actual car fuel tank up on wall brackets, right up. So you had to go up steps to fill it from a jerry can. Because the engines were not dry sump, you had no means of cooling the, the, the sump. So there was a, a U-section pipe with lots of little holes drilled in it, just connected to the water mains that sprayed cold water under the sump. It's amazing to you describe that because not a few miles down the road from here at Wrighton, there's Jaguar Classic, who, of course, are remaking the lightweights. Yes. And if you look at the facilities they've got there to build those cars, yes. it's just nothing like the shed you've just described, no, is nothing it? Nothing at no. all. <laughs> no. I can remember one instance. I mean, this is... I mean, I only spent just under a year with Jack Emerson. But, uh, we are developing uh, an alcohol fuel engine and trying to run it up to ever higher speeds. As I found out later, you know, much over 6.5, the, the XK crank just is, is twisting so much, everything shakes to pieces. 
but we're trying to run this engine up there. And in those days, we had a metallastic crankshaft damper, which had a cast iron inertia ring with bonded rubber onto a, a plate to which was attached to the front of the crank. Well, at very high revs, that was absorbing so much energy in the rubber, it melted. And this spinning cast iron wheel dropped on the floor, shot through the sheets of, of asbestos that were beside and, and stood in the corner of the test house, jumping up against the wall like this, <laughs> sparking. Smouldering away, good grief. That's incredible amounts of energy, isn't it? To heat oh, yes. something up like yes. that from a, from yes. a vibration. Amazing. And of course, these are all the things you were testing to try and get around these issues before these cars hit the track. That's right. Well, I don't think the, the Carl Field engine ever ran in a car. But after, after 10 months there, um, I was a graduate member of the IMACE. And to get full membership, you had to have done a tour around the factory. So I got there with the help of Joe Barker, the apprentice supervisor, got Bill Haynes to agree to me moving around the, the factory. Um, so I started in the machine shop, then on the production lines, and then for about two months or more, on the line that was put in to make the Meteor crankshaft. Because Jagger had a contract yeah. to refurbish Meteor engines. They used to come in, cover with mud and so on, and be rebuilt. But they also had a contract to fully machine and build brand new engines. And I, with a fitter called Jack Bedder, spent about two months taking a couple of crank forgings down the crankshaft line, setting it up. And alongside were uh, transfer machines for heads and blocks, Huller, brand new Huller equipment from Germany. And to my knowledge, they never built an engine because at the end, end of, we, we finished these two cranks, but at the end of that, defense cuts, the project was chopped. Yes. Yeah. Sure. yeah. So I ended up then, well, about three or four months later, going into the drawing office to begin work on the, uh, the Ministry V8, a nine and a quarter litre V8, typical Jaguar design, cylinder heads, four valves, twin camshafts. And because of that, I was uh, uh, working on a ministry project. I was deferred. So uh, I used to go down to the deferment office in, in Coventry once a year. And of all people, the deferment officer in Coventry was Bert Hadley. And so we used to chat about draggers and racing because he'd, he'd driven for Jagger a few times. And at the end, he'd signed me off for a year until I got to the age of 25, and he said, I can only sign you off for three months at a time. I can only give you three of them. So I said, well, I'll, I'll go in. Well, by then, they, we built, I think, about six of the V8s, and some had gone down to Chobham. In the early days of my national service, I tried to get transferred to Chobham, and uh, the, the CEO at the camp that I was in a board, uh, no, at Honiton, was very helpful. But it got the answer back that FERDE at Chobham had no establishment for national servicemen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I stayed where I was. 
that's just about all we have time for in part one of this interview but join us in two weeks time back here on the jaguar enthusiast club podcast for part two where we'll continue with peter wilson jerry beddows frank philpot peter jones and brian martin as we continue to tell the story of the men who built jaguars lightweight e-type a huge thanks as ever to the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust for giving us permission to reproduce the audio from this interview. And of course, until next time, enjoy your Jaguars. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.